Welcome to the In Common Podcast. This is Stefan Partilow. In today's IJC series, Frank von Leerhoven and I are speaking with Karen Bradshaw. Karen was a recent guest editor in a special issue of the International Journal of the Commons titled Overlapping Resources and Mismatched Property Rights with her colleagues Billy Christmas and Dean Lueck. The special issue features nine articles, including an editorial led by the guest editors, outlining the different contributions of the individual papers and the overall compilations as, quote, an intellectual history, theoretical development, normative questioning, and institutional analysis that undergirds new conceptions of property rights and physical landscapes. We hope it provides a foundation for future applications of the insight of governing complex systems of property with interrelated resources and mismatched property rights, unquote. Karen Bradshaw is a professor at Arizona State University in the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law and holds a joint position as a senior sustainability scientist in the Global Institute of Sustainability and Innovation. She researches governance of natural resources with an emphasis on emerging regulatory approaches, including certification regimes, public-private partnerships, and collaborative settlements. She's an expert on wildlife law and has also written about land development and forest management. This is the In Common Podcast. So what I uh, wanted to start with, uh, Karen, is, is, is the following. So in our recent uh, editorial, uh, Michael Schoon and, uh, and Sergio Villamayor, we established that uh, law ranks in our list of department, departments that authors that are publishing on the commons are affiliated with. So, it's the, so, what, so it, it ranks second after economics and economics wins by a, by a long shot, by the way. And, and a legal or a law focus on the study of the commons, uh, especially from an institutional perspective, makes a lot of sense. But until you contacted us with the idea to develop uh, your special issue uh, in, in IJC, historically, we didn't seem to attract a lot of uh, uh, attention from uh, legal scholars. So uh, we were over the moon when you pitched your idea. Uh, but at the same time, we were a little bit nervous because uh, we don't have a real legal background and uh, we're out of our comfort zone. So maybe that is true not only for us, but also for uh, some or many of our readers or listeners to this podcast, which is why we're very excited to have you here with us uh, to chat with us, to fill us in on why we should all take note of the important work that you have managed to put together, together with uh, Billy and, uh, and, and Dean. Uh, so, so why don't you start by telling a little bit about yourself, your background, your education, uh, your whereabouts, your interests, uh, so, th so, so the listeners uh, know who you are. Sure. Thank you so much, Frank. I have to say the delight was mutual when we had the opportunity to publish with uh, you and the journal for this special issue. Uh, law journals tend to be student edited journals, so it's a very different format. And we were enthusiastic about connecting with a peer reviewed publication and also an interdisciplinary group. I think that legal scholars, as you mentioned, have done some really interesting work on the commons, but that has to some extent been siloed, right? You do see law and economics connections, um, but I think this symposium episode or symposium issue and specifically the symposium itself that underscored it 
was designed to bring together an international interdisciplinary group of scholars who are working at the intersection of the same set of issues. So thank you for having us. A bit about myself, I am a professor of law and the Mary Sigler Research Fellow at Arizona State University School of Law, uh, Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. I'm also a senior sustainability scientist at the Global Institute of Sustainability at Arizona State University and an affiliate scholar at the Classical Liberal Institute at New York University. Uh, we don't need to include all of that, uh, but those are the formal titles. I am originally from far, far Northern California, um, two very small towns, one on the Northern coast and the other at the base of Mount Shasta. And I think that fundamental time outdoors and in rural spaces opened my eyes to some of the dynamics that this issue talks about. Thank you, Karen. I was looking at the just at the introduction that you wrote to the special issue and it's, it's titled an introduction to overlapping resources and, and mismatched property rights. Can you give us a little bit of a summary of the special issue, what it focuses on specifically within, within that space? Sure. So this issue in some ways introduces a new model of property. So in legal understandings of property, there tends to be a focus on this binary owned, unowned, owners, non-owners with regard to resources. But over time, I think that model has increasingly come under criticism on a variety of fronts for a variety of reasons. But from an observational, descriptive, institutional perspective, Dean Luke and I observed in a 2015 article that in fact, this model doesn't square neatly with reality. Um, if you begin to think about property as resources or rights to resources and land in three-dimensional shape, there are in fact many overlapping rights that coexist within the same area. And this is true both vertically, um, for example, you can have subsurface mineral rights, land rights, water rights, and airspace rights in the same vertical column. And it's also true horizontally, if you will, in that there can be overlapping sets of rights in a shared resource within that resource. So for example, um, on land, there can be temporal rights where for part of the year, someone's farming the land and for another part of the year, someone's hunting on the same land. And so the land is divisible in a variety of ways. And that's one area of abstraction. You also have abstraction with forms of ownership. In the US, we tend to focus heavily on private property, which is owned presumably by an individual, although it turns out that much, many pieces of property are owned in fact by two or more people a real estate investment trust, corporations, et cetera. Um, but this sort of unilateral owner is not the only option. We of course have communal property, although we don't think of it as such very often in the US. We have public property. And then in certain parts of the world, we have commons or even unowned lands or unowned areas. And so you have this multitude of property rights and property regimes coexisting in space where you have the different resources, the different dimensions of property, and then added on to that, the different forms of ownership in a space. So suddenly we've taken this very simple construct of property as a thing to be owned mm -hmm. by an individual and made it much messier. Wonderful. What types of contributions uh, are in the special issue? So do you have a variety of different case studies from around the world or a certain area, or do you focus on a mix and have different theoretical contributions as well? It was a really exciting mix. This uh, volume came together somewhat organically. New York University School of Law, the Classical Liberal Institute, co-hosted a two-day symposium with the Ostrom Institute at Indiana University, the Natural Resource Workshop. 
at the Ostrom Institute. So you had these two very different intellectual traditions combining. Um, and with that, the various scholars and stakeholders who were involved in the conference, this included Dean Luke and Billy, Com Billy Christmas and I, um, we, we brought very different perspective and ideas of who it would be exciting to have. And we sort of got our wish list. We got this incredible group of interdisciplinary scholars, including Carol Rose, uh, who has published in International Journal of the Commons uh, yep. before, and just fascinating work, a really interesting historical presentation of these ideas. We had Richard Epstein talking about long and skinny rights, like roads and railroad lines and pipelines. Um, we had Nick Cohen and Charles Delmont, which talked about uh, floodplains, a sort of very interesting case study that might be familiar in the Ostrom tradition of floodplains and how that relates um, to the idea of mismatched property rights. Ryan Leonard and I wrote a paper about um, sort of the governance structures. Ryan's a natural resource economist at ASU and we wrote about the governance structures and how we can envision different forms of governance working flexibly so we know resources and lands are constantly shifting. How might the law do the same? Robin Cundis Craig and JB Roll did this fascinating paper. Um, it's on wildfire. And it's looking specifically at how um, this model can inform the way we understand the management of wildfire. And this ties into their long and excellent strand of work individually and also collaboratively on adaptive management. Um, which is thinking about governing complex resources that are managed, held, owned, and interested in by very, very many different people. Monica Ehrman did a fantastic piece on uh, hidden resources. So she is an oil and gas expert as well as a legal scholar with a scientific background. And she combined those interests to provide a property perspective on resources that are invisible to the naked eye and therefore uh, sometimes escape notice, but nevertheless have legal doctrines uh, that affect other resources. And then Tara Rigetti, talked about split estates. So this is very much a case study as well. Um, she's looking at surface and subsurface mineral rights and thinking about the ways in which two or more parties share those horizontal resources. So sort of as I was talking about the temporal split on land, she looks at simple, similar ways of splitting uh, vertical rights, the subsurface and surface rights or land and mineral rights um, and the legal doctrines that underlie that. And finally, Shally Fassmeyer, a PhD student about mine, and I talked about the ways in which stakeholder collaborations are being used across different topics and specifically wildlife to manage this mess, right? So if we say that property is messier than we think it is and that the traditional bilateral models we talk about in law are in fact artificially simplified, what is actually governing this? And Sally and I look at three wildfire, wildlife case studies um, and talk about the way that stakeholder collaborations can play an important governance role. Yeah, that's that's great. You didn't miss a beat. You uh, you covered. I was reading along, and yeah, and I enjoyed uh, reading all of those articles. And it's uh, such a richness of uh, of sources. Uh, and 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 in your um, introduction, you conclude, you summarize your findings by saying that um, the perceived competition between public and private is often based on a false dichotomy. Uh, furthermore, you, you, you note that property rights are in and by itself insuff insufficient to understand a landscape. 
And thirdly, you conclude that climate change causes resource boundaries to shift rapidly. That's in a nutshell, uh, the conclusion that you arrive at. And I think that aligns uh, fairly well with what I have read in all the individual contributions to your, uh, to your special feature. So would you mind sharing with us and with our listeners in a bit more detail how you arrived at these insights or maybe more importantly, what these insights mean in practice for the, the governance of the of the, of, of, of commons or sh uh, or shared resources would that be possible sure i can try um so frank i had to tell you i i went to law school but i'd had a long education in sort of the natural environment before i went to law school so i remember mm -hmm. before i went to law school i went backpacking with a friend um and while we were backpacking this friend who had a high school education um, showed me this different way of seeing. And so there's this old hunter's trick. I never knew about before this trick, um, but we were sitting on a hillside and he pointed in the distance and he said, there's a deer. And I said, how did you see that deer? It's so far away. We're way back here. The deer is way on that hillside. How would you possibly spot that deer? And he said, you have to let your eyes go fuzzy. And it was something that his grandfather had taught him. Okay. He had learned that if you look softly, at the landscape instead of in the sort of very pointed way that we as I think Western uh, landscape viewers, if you will, are used to looking, you can mm -hmm. in fact take in the whole landscape at once very passively. So you go from being a seeker to a receiver. You see the landscape in a different way. Um, and he showed me later on that trip that it works for stars as well. So I'd always looked at the stars and seen a single star or maybe a constellation. And with this trick, you see the whole night sky at once. So it's mm. just a different way of looking at the world. And I, I didn't think about it for years, right? That was before I went to law school. I traveled to law school, um, went to law school, graduated and had started an academic career. And Dean Luke, my longtime friend and co-author and I, uh, were invited to co-author an article for the Iowa Law Review. And so um, as that was happening, as we were talking about the article and I began to think about the landscapes and the ideas and the fascinating case studies that Dean has done and sort of these ideas surrounding the commons and how landscapes are governed, um, I became pregnant. And so I was very, very ill. I was not good at being pregnant. I just had to lay in bed most of the time. Uh, but what happened was quite extraordinary because unable to write, right? Unable to talk or think in the ways that academics typically work through ideas. I was sort of confined to just sitting there. And as I sat there, I began to uh, sort of think about my favorite places just to relax. So I began to think of a waterfall in Northern California that I go to um, and sort of work through these different places, the redwoods that I uh, grew up in in California. And um, eventually I realized I wanted to see multiple places at once. So in my mind's eye, I did this trick that my friend had taught me years and years before when we were backpacking. And I sort of stepped back and saw the entire landscape. Mm. and began to think about the Northern California landscape and then its component parts. I then work on wildfires and forests. And so I began to see the parts and notice that their boundaries were separate than the underlying land boundaries. Um, and confined as I was to bed for weeks, um, I had lots of time to play with this idea. And I began to understand that the multidimensionality of property extends uh, horizontally and vertically, but also throughout time, mm -hmm. right? And once you begin to understand property in that way, 
it takes a very, very different model. It's a, it's a different way of understanding the landscape. So I called Dean and Dean is brilliant and no doubt had seen this years before, um, but intuitively and instantly gas, grasped what I was saying. And we set about trying to write a paper that grasped the idea that land parcels do not capture the full scope of property, ownerships, rights, interests in a landscape. And that was that 2015 article. And from there, uh, we noticed, we just sort of thought we wrote the article and moved on. We, I think, thought we were done with it. Um, Brian and I had begun talking about a more economic approach to some of the ideas, expressing the ideas in economic terms. Um, but I became aware that a number of people were doing different work that related on this, really interdisciplinary, different work. Um, yeah. And I think that that's how this came together, was just wanting to continue the conversation with people who saw the article, uh, were sort of inspired by the model, and then began to develop it in these new, really interesting ways that we hadn't anticipated. Karen, you, you, you can't believe how, how glad I am uh, that we are now talking with you. I'm, I'm pretty sure that the way in which you talk about the process and the procedures that led to where you are now will never, ever appear in, in actual academic writing. So this is, <laughs> this is fantastic. Um, ways forward, I guess. So, so you, you, you have described the process where you looked at... Uh, Contract created contracts, uh, boundaries, uh, and private governance in, 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 in areas that are traditionally imagined as public. Uh, 2015 article, realization that there's more people out there looking with somewhat of the same blurry vision at landscapes and disciplines and, and, and legal scholarship developing this, this special issue. Are there ways forward still, book projects, uh, curricula development, uh, future ideas that need to be tested? What are your thoughts on that, uh, Karen? I can't wait to see more. I know uh, scholars who, unfortunately, just as a matter of space constraints and time constraints, are doing really interesting related work that we haven't had an opportunity to include in the symposium volume. We were, in fact, looking at having a uh, second symposium, COVID obviously canceled yeah. that um, time-wise, but I think that this is the start of a conversation and a conversation that I envision will be bold and different and interdisciplinary. I don't know that it will take place solely, if even primarily in law, if it will be natural resources, economics, if it will be political science, if it will be a blend or if it will be something new. I'm just interested and curious to find out, but I think the exciting thing is that I'm one tiny person in this sea of ideas and Billy and Dean, Henry Smith, Carol Rose, so many people have done amazing work on this for so mm -hmm. long uh, that I feel that uh, we're just joining this issue. We're braiding it in with many other ideas and efforts that have been made over time. And so I think certainly this feels like the start of a conversation, something that will be more over time or perhaps we're joining the conversation um, but what that looks like specifically, I don't have an agenda. I think I'm open to whatever forms that take in the future. I think in the near term, it will probably be a symposium to get some more wonderful folks in different interdisciplinary practices sort of together to continue talking about these ideas. I'm just excited to see where it leads. I think for law specifically and property law, it is an invitation to reintegrate 
areas of what is in my mind, the same law that has been splintered into fields so that we don't have to deal with the difficult and messy externalities mm -hmm. of our actions, right? Why is environmental law separate from property, separate from natural resources, separate from land use law, separate from environmental justice? Why are those distinct courses and areas of study? And so I think that creating an invitation to look at sort of something we think we know very well, property law, and making it much messier invites new and exciting conversations and also pragmatically really important theories um, and sort of practices that can inform better laws, governance, and social practices that align more with where public will and society is today. Karen, I have to jump on something there that you mentioned, and also because it's one of the main themes of the podcast that we, that we talk about, and that's interdisciplinarity. And to put together this special issue and to bring together those diverse types of case studies and, and perspectives, where do, you, where do you see some of the challenges being? Because you mentioned going forward, you want to bring an interdisciplinary perspective into this, and it seems that you think in this more systems-oriented way and a multidimensional way. What are, what are some of those challenge for, challenges for you uh, from, from your perspective in interdisciplinarity? And what do you think are some of the, the key things that we can work on as a field of folks who study property rights and commons to, to help overcome those going forward? I have to admit it's happened rather organically for me um, that I come to know people in other fields. So just as Frank said, sort of the origin story of this project is not something one's likely to find in an academic journal, right? Uh, being pregnant and nauseous somehow has not hit the mainstream uh, for academic journals. I think that the way that I relate to scholarship and the shared enterprise of developing, talking about thinking about implementing ideas is really relational, right? So it is not an accident that I wrote a volume with friends of mine, uh, with people from different fields who I respect and like and value as people. It's not an accident uh, that I came to International of the Journal of the Commons, International Journal of the Commons through Mike, who is a good friend. Um, he is at ASU. I am fortunate to be in an institution that truly, not pays lip service to, but truly encourages this kind of interdisciplinary freedom. Um, I sit on PhD committees, although law does not have PhD students, at least at ESU or most American law schools. Um, so I just am interested in the people and the work they're doing. And I think the best thing that I can do and we can do as a field is just to be open uh, to new ways of seeing the world, to have the perspective that people, even if their methodologies are different, are not wrong. Uh, they simply are saying something else as part of the conversation and to look for those commonalities and those opportunities to intersect. Um, so mm -hmm. I see the relational aspect, which I think frankly is fundamental to Ostrom's work and the study of the commons in general, uh, the emphasis on the relationship between people. I think it's important to extend that to our scholarly field. So I. I have to admit, I see relatively few barriers. Um, I mostly see opportunities. Wonderful. Frank, would you like to add any last thoughts? Yeah, maybe, maybe it's a bit much for a, for a last thought, but based on what you have learned during this journey that has not yet completed, uh, the complexity of it all, the interdisciplinarity, is, is there anything that by now you can offer to, to, to commoners? If you're a landowner, working your way with boundaries, real or, or imagined, what, what can they learn or take from your work or the kinds of 
knowledges that you are generating through the various projects that you are engaged in? Is that an easy question to answer? I, I guess not, but maybe you can give it a try. I think it's a horribly difficult question, but also a wonderfully exciting one. So I'm excited that you asked. Thank you. Um, I, I have to say these are conversations I have all the time. So my father is a forester who manages 60,000 acres in Northern California and did not envision his daughter becoming an environmental law professor to say the least. Um, but I think having constant conversations with him and other family friends who are in the practice of managing land for commercial and industrial purposes is something I do quite a bit. I go home every summer for between a month and three months to research and to connect uh, with the people and the place where I'm from. And so when I have those conversations, I have to admit I listen more than I talk. Um, I'm relatively new in this journey. I've done it a decade. I'm speaking to people who have had a relationship with the land for 50 years or more. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know that I'm trying to convince them of anything or tell them anything they don't know. I think mostly I'm interested in their observations, but to the extent um, that I try to focus on the work, I just try to say that academic models attempt to describe the reality that many people already know. And sometimes we don't do it very well. And so by having a model that takes away some of the beauty and connectedness of people with resources and property and rights and strips the interests of non-owners who nevertheless have active interests, we have created this artificial reality within academia. Mm -hmm. And I think of my work as attempting to better replicate what I know from my childhood spent outdoors and among rural groups of people um, and also over time in more urban settings and to reflect reality better. So I think that's the idea. And I think landowners are pretty sympathetic to the idea that academics don't know it all uh, mm -hmm. and that we might benefit from spending some more time with them sort of observing and learning the lessons that they know. That's, that's fantastic. I am, I am so glad that I have gotten to know you a little bit better than being the author of, uh, of, of, of some of the papers that appeared in our journal. Just uh, the person behind uh, behind the articles, uh, the stories that you have, uh, have have shared with us so far. I think uh, with this we can we can conclude uh, our conversation. Thanking you for your time, and 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 I'm glad that modestly as a journal we have, I hope, contributed to facilitating the dialogues and the conversations that you have uh, that you have started, uh, Karen. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Frank. It's honestly my pleasure. And thank you, Stefan. I really appreciate both of your time. And I can't tell you how much it meant to publish an international journal of the commons. This issue is the perfect home. So thank you for providing that home. Oh, thank you, Karen. And is there anywhere before we, before we hit the final end where you would like to guide uh, listeners where they can find your work or to connect with you if you'd like? Sure. My website is kmbradshaw.com and my Twitter handle is a I'm sorry, my Twitter handle is at KM underscore Bradshaw. Thanks so much, Karen. Thanks for tuning in. The In Common Podcast is produced by Michael Cox, Courtney Hammond-Wagner, and myself. We are a partner project of the International Association for the Study of the Commons and the International Journal of the Commons. To listen to more episodes, you can find us on any podcast app or listen on our website, www.incommonpodcast.org. On our website, you will find our link to our blog and our Patreon page where you can make a small donation to help us cover our operating costs. 
You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at InCommonPod.